All right, there's a couple of things I want to I want to share with you in my heart this morning. Um, I don't know how excited I'm going to get, but I I have a burden in my heart recently that's that I went over a few years ago. I had a, a season where the Lord had me speak specifically on kingdom issues, kingdom realities. And we spent quite a degree of time on it. And I feel like that's being revived back in my mind and my heart. And so I just want to go over some things with you to maybe help you. Pray for me as I speak the word of the Lord. Because whenever somebody gets up to speak a word, if they're trying to do it in the right heart, in the right way, What's happening is is that they're battling decades of thought that's been established in people's minds that has caused them to come to the current state of the existence that they now represent, which is mostly apathetic in the church of Jesus. But yet those mindsets that they've taken decades to create are the thing that gives them the... um, the solace in continuing on what they're doing, which is usually nothing. (laughs) And so when somebody tries to get up to speak the word of the Lord, it's not so much to encourage people in what they're already doing, though that should be the case. It's more often to challenge them where they are so they can be where they need to be. So it's very difficult for someone in this position, whoever it may be, because you're going toe-to-toe with opinions, ideas, thought processes that have wrecked lives, wrecked marriages, wrecked hearts, wrecked jobs and relationships, and yet people will still defend these mindsets as if they're the right way to go. Does that make sense? So it's hard, isn't it? I don't know why people come to church if they don't want their mindset changed or shifted. If you're here to punch a clock... That's not going to help you on the final day of judgment. You might as well go home and relax. Jesus' first message was about repentance. And repentance means change how you think. How we think is how we live. If you're a selfish person, you're going to belittle people and berate people in order to elevate yourself in every circumstance and situation. And you're going to elevate what you think is right And you're going to force people to try to mold into that. Because there's no servant's heart. You with me? Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus right? Some of you aren't sure. You need to figure that out before we can go on. (laughs) If he's not right, we need to change the name of our church. And figure out who is right. But is he right? Does he force you into anything? How come when you're right, you you think you get to force other people into your way? It's just not the way of God. To force people in what you know to be right. Your way is to present it. Your job is to present it in such a way, in such a beautiful way that people see it and go, man, I think I want that. I think I want that truth. I think I want that reality. Whatever they have in their home, in their life. There's something different there. I want it. 
We're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to make people thirsty for, for something greater than where they're at. And even though we might have had some great experiences in our past, if those great experiences are the only thing we're resting upon, then we're never going to see God for more than what we've already experienced. We've created our own ceiling, and then we tell everybody else that they have to have that ceiling as theirs as well. And then when somebody lifts the ceiling, then we disagree with them because it wasn't done the way we had it done to us. But the Bible is very clear that we go from glory to glory, and the hardest part of leaving a glory or to getting to a new glory is leaving the old glory. We see that in generations all the time. So much so that it brings division in the church. You remember 15, 20 years ago when the biggest culture shift of the church was old music versus new music, and they had to actually create two services, one that was more for the older people and one that was for the younger people? Why? I rejoice when my kids create something that I can't do. I'm like, I can't do that. I can't. Why would I want to force them into doing it? my way first thing God did was create it's the first attribute of Jesus and God we see we didn't God didn't you know in the beginning God so loved the world that's not what it says it says in the beginning God created creativity is the first thing we saw God do why because love always creates it always expands itself it always opens new possibilities and realms of who, seeing who he is do you think that that our current level of understanding in Jesus is going to be the 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 way to go and we see God eye to eye and face to face throughout all eternity and like oh no god you can't do that because you weren't like that you didn't show me that on the earth so so that's not you you can't do that here do you think he won't show a new part of himself to you that you've never seen before I can prove it to you scripturally that Jesus showed even the disciples a new part of himself that they never saw before, and they lived with the man in flesh for three and a half years. And yet we think that what's happened to us is, is the ultimate stage of everything, and then we, we don't grow. You know, I, I've been in church a long time, and, I, and I, I, I see worship sets where some of them are really powerful, where people just have to ball because God just sweeps the room. I mean... They usher in something that is so powerful that it just it has to affect everybody. But then there's times where, where I've seen worship sets where, you know, you got one or two people over here like like bawling their eyes out, just on their face and like just in love with God, and everybody else is just kind of going. And I used to wonder what the difference was. I don't anymore. I know what the difference is. Some people are hungry. And some people have lost the hunger they were given. Amen. They're full. They don't want to change. They don't want God to upset their apple cart. Because they really don't like faith. Because when faith enters the situation, you lose control. You lose the ability to tell people what they should and shouldn't do because you have no clue what to do. And you literally have to come to a place where like, I don't know, if God doesn't move, we're all screwed. We created Christianity to keep us from those types of things. We ask God to bless us so we don't have to live in faith. And if he doesn't bless us, we just use our credit card and we get ourselves out of the situation. <laughs> but you know what? Everything that's lost can be found. And if you lost your hunger, 
you can find it again. And he wants you to find it again. God didn't create you to exist in some sort of robotic reality where you just punch a clock on Sunday and listen, you know, listen to some guy tell you what you already think you know and then you go home. I, what? I grew up in that and I couldn't figure out why we even did it. Church every, every Sunday. Why are we here? I don't know. So I can watch Brother Jackson and Brother Smith on the front row compete with each other and vocals during the worship set and see who can sing the loudest, yet both of them treat their wives like crap because I hang out with their kids. Why are we here? I don't know why we're here. Well, now I know why we're here. And it changes everything. You with me? A Christianity that's centered on yourself turns the intents of God upon its head. You literally flip God's complete intention upside down when you make it about you. The, the center of all Christianity, at the center of all Christianity, there is no room for me or for you. There's no room. There's only room for Him inhabiting and moving through us. I just want to prove this to you. I just want to show you some things in Scripture because I feel like we've, we've scrambled the kingdom line. We've blurred the kingdom line and we've created a culture that can exist without propagating the kingdom that we say we believe in. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew, or no, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 4. Um, we're going we're gonna to start verse 30. But many times we confuse we confuse the intention of our calling, like the reason why we're here. How many of you guys have ever gotten to that, even with good things? Like in your faith, you, you, you're doing good for a while, and all of a sudden you kind of get burdened down with the cares of this life, and, you're, and then re, without realizing it, you wake up one day and go, man, I'm really just living for a paycheck. That has become, that has become the goal of my month. I mean, like all I thought about was just paying the bills. You know, I, I just got reduced down to nothing more than a cog in the American wheel to be able to keep the bank at bay and maybe have enough to have some taxes paid or possibly, Jesus' name, I get a refund. Right? And that becomes the center of our existence and we, and we forget why we're here. We forget the calling of God upon our life. We think just being saved is good enough and bless God, I'm a Christian and I can just do whatever I want from here on out and live my life. Maybe you can, but I'll tell you one thing. I won't trade places with a person like that on their deathbed for all the money in the world. Because I read other things in Scripture. Jesus said, make disciples. And I ask Christians, how many disciples have you made? Most of them just sit there kind of like, uh, none? None? Well, was it a suggestion or a command? So he didn't say get people saved, did he? That's his job. Holy Spirit's the only person that can get somebody born again. He's the only one that can do that. Once they're born again, your work starts. My work starts. Our work starts. 
Did Jesus make disciples? You guys are a little unsure this morning. Are we supposed to be like him? Are we supposed to do what he did? Are we supposed to do greater things than he did? Then why isn't the church doing it? I don't know. I don't know why. So sometimes we get tired. We get tired with living with our current reality. We get tired of being who we are. So we'll either vegetate into society and just exist and robotically begin to blur into society, or we'll try to pursue God so that we can become better versions of ourselves. Both are wrong. Our relationship with Jesus becomes about becoming morally perfect when that's not the goal. Morals get perfected as you obey the kingdom standards. The more you give, the more you learn and grow. The more you become perfected. You don't have to be perfect to start making disciples. Trust me, making disciples will make you perfect. Because <laughs> it will expose every imperfection in you, and as it does, then you get to deal with it as it shows up. But it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be exposed if you hadn't done the making of the disciple. Right? Some of you think I'm lying. Well... Let me prove it to you. You ever have kids and they draw something out of you that you didn't know was there? That's what people do. But instead of loving and serving them and going to God and having ourselves changed, what we do oftentimes is we begin to mandate how they should operate and then we create our mini, mini cult. so funny that churches nowadays that are trying to become more biblically aligned are called cults by the standard denominations. Whenever standard denominations actually operate more of a cultish idea than, than progressive churches. And I'm not, I don't mean progressive on a leftist term. What's a cult? It's something that's ruled and dominated by one person. That's the pastor in the American church. My Bible says that every one of you have a gift and a calling, a song, a hymn, a spiritual song given to be able to minister to one another, that you are the hands and feet of Jesus. All my job is, is to perfect the saints. And guess what? Once the saints are perfected, the apostle, the prophet, the pastor, the evangelist, the teacher, there's no need for them anymore. Why? Because in Ephesians, when those mandates are given, it says these things are given until, which means they're temporary. Yet we idolize all five of those gifts to the point where that's everything in the church. No, you are everything in the church. Our job is just to equip and perfect you to a point where you can actually begin to do what God asks you to do. And then once you do that, we're no longer needed. How's that for some theology? Y'all are really quiet. Okay, you can... Throw rocks at me in a minute. Just let me get a little farther and we'll see. See, the intention of God is in the kingdom release of the king. The goal of God has always been to release Jesus into the earth. Always. That's why he came. And then we, when his spirit came inside of us, then the goal became us releasing Jesus into the earth, which was God's intention. And so it doesn't matter how right you are in a circumstance. What matters is, is how much you are able to release Jesus. And Jesus 
when he was right, got hit in the face, punched in the face, and turned the other cheek. But we think just because we've been punched in the face that they're wrong. The point isn't who's right or wrong. The point is who can be like Jesus. Why? Because God's goal is to release Jesus. Now, if you get slapped in the face and you come out like a lion or a bear, <clears throat> you're not like Jesus. But because you acted that way, now you have pinpointed what's keeping you from being like Jesus. So now you have something to work on. You have your individual mandate to get rid of that thing, not so that you can be this, not be this arrogant turd in front of everybody, but because you can release Jesus. You see the point? The point isn't getting you to be better so you don't look so bad in front of people when you react and respond. That's not the point. That's, that's manipulating and saving your human pride. So you don't look so bad whenever you're <laughs> flashing on everybody. That's not the, the point is, is that you begin to be like him in the middle of circumstances so that when people do treat you badly, they actually get to see what love looks like in that context. Because the Bible says that we're supposed to love our enemies. We have a hard time loving our spouses. Enemies are there because they hate you. They don't love you. They don't like you. Their job is to undermine you and ridicule you and poke and prod you until you respond like them so that they can prove they're right and you're wrong. But if you respond like the king, then what happens is, is that instant conviction that they've never felt before rolls right over them, steamrolls them, and puts them in a position where they realize, I need to change. All because one person was willing to suffer and act like a king and undergo injustice instead of standing up for their American rights. I believe in patriotism, but you know what? The American flag will not wave in heaven. Jesus isn't an American. My first duties are to the kingdom of heaven. And within responsibility, the kingdom of heaven tells me to serve my government, my country the best I can. But if those lines get blurred on disobeying any realm of the kingdom, then I have a mandate to stand on one or the other, and I get to choose. You with me? The purpose of God in calling your life is not so that you can be a better version of yourself or have a better marriage or have better children or even a better society. All of those things are byproducts of pleasing the Lord first. When we put kingdom first, what happens is, is that God begins to take care of everything else. And then all the other things that we're trying to fix begin to come under his order. It's amazing that when one son of God stands up and acts like Jesus, how much the entire realm begins to change around them. There's a story of a man, I, I forget his first name, but he got radically born again. He was a heathen, man. I'm toward the end of his life. He got radically born again, and he was just the worst person. He got saved like in his 70s. 
and he got radically saved and he thought, you know, I spent so much time and energy for the world and I was so radical and everything I did for the world, I'm going to do that for Jesus. So he spent like nine, nine years of his life on his face, hours in prayer, just giving himself to God and rolling through the scriptures. And he became such an anointed person. And one day he went back to a job he used to work at a factory and he walked in the room and, and some of his old co-workers were, were standing around and they were passing around this lewd photo of this woman. And they're all laughing and joking and, and it finally, you know, he stands, he comes up and he says, hey guys, what's happening? You know, and, they, and they just, he, he saw the picture and they knew he changed so they tried to hide it and he saw it and he just broke. He just started crying. And the Spirit of the Lord came in the room. And every one of those men began to weep and repent. Why? Because one son, one son positioned himself in the kingdom of God so greatly that when he impacted the culture around him, he didn't yank it out of their hands and rebuke him and beat him over the head with a Bible and tell him they aren't supposed to be doing these things. They already know what they're not supposed to be doing. You know what you're not supposed to be doing. Does it keep you from not doing it? Knowledge never keeps anyone from sin. We ate of that tree in the beginning, didn't we? And we still kept eating from it. And we still eat from it. That's all this is, is a battle between who can give life and who is eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Arguments happen because people want to be right and someone else to be wrong. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Who's right? Who's wrong? And if I'm right, then I get to subjugate you in your wrongness with my rightness. Jesus doesn't even do that to us. He came down here, we were wrong, he was right, he didn't beat us over the head with it. In fact, he did the exact opposite. He died for people who weren't worth his death. This is what it means to be a kingdom person. Did I give you enough time to, try to find Mark? Okay. Verse 30. He says, what are we going to liken the kingdom of God to See, Jesus is here trying to explain to these people something they've never seen before. You have to get the context of this story. If you read the Bible in a uh, pre-formatted idea of knowing the end, then you begin to miss the nuances of the middle. <clears throat> so you've got to understand, they've, they've never heard the story. They, they don't know he's going to die. They don't know about the cross. They don't know about the Holy Spirit. They don't know about the revival that's coming. All these things could be prophesied right to their faces, and they wouldn't believe it. And so he begins to say, how can I get you to see something that I'm bringing that you can't see? This is the goal that I talked about in the beginning. When a pastor or a preacher stands up in front of people, how do I get them to see what I know is real, but they can't see? It's exactly what Jesus is doing right here. He's trying to show them a kingdom that they don't even know exists. How do you wrestle with the minds of men when they're so stuck in being right about everything and they're completely wrong and they're deceived and they don't know it? How do you get them to transition to seeing something they can't see? Do you realize that deceived people don't know they're deceived? Amen. Yeah. It's huge revelation. The problem with that revelation is, is what if you're the deceived one? The problem with that is, is you don't know you're deceived. hundred times out of a hundred, deceived people think they're right. This is why we got to go back to the word. Why? Because my opinions will betray me. If I can't find it in operation in the man Jesus Christ, then I should not find it in the operation in my man. 
right? Okay, come on. That, that would even get an amen in a, in a standard denominational church. Well, I'm not naming names. So I don't want to offend anybody. We get offended with everything. I don't understand that, but we do. All right. He says, how can I liken the kingdom of God to you? What comparison or what parable shall we picture it with? Next, next verse. He says, it's like a grain of mustard seed that when it's sown into the ground, it's smaller than all the seeds of on the earth. So he's trying to show them, like, look, I want to show you what the kingdom is like. It looks insignificant. It looks like something you don't give your life to. It looks like something that you'd pass by. It looks like something that you would just, just discard and see is not important. You have a pack of seeds, and you, you know, you're going out to the garden. You spill a few on the ground. Do you stop and pick them up? No. No, you don't. You just, why? Because it's not important. What the mind sees as unimportant, God sees as essential and crucial. That tells you right off the bat that most of us do not think in kingdom terms. We think in political terms. I'm not against having godly leadership and presidencies and all that. I'm not against that. But I'm telling you, one president cannot change the heart of a nation. And we're like, oh, who's going to be the next president? So that's, our, that's, where, that's where the nation's going. No, the nation goes in the directions in which the culture underneath the presidency follows. People dictate that. The presidents we have now were brought into power at some local level because somebody didn't do their homework and vote right. <laughs> Does this make sense? You can't have a president without having him first gone through some sort of congressional or senatorial or gubernatorial, you know, local election. He started, so these people started somewhere, and everybody around that culture where they got into power was completely deceived. So he says, it's like a grain of mustard seed, which is sown into the earth. What happens when you put a seed in the ground? It dies. The seed dies. How many want to die? Huh? No hands? No? I want to be like Jesus. Uh, he died. <laughs> Nobody wants to die. Everybody's going to. And I'm, just, I'm not talking about just the end. Something in your life is going to die. Your marriage, your finances, something's going to die in your life. It might as well be you. Because if you die, then when you come out of that situation, you're going to be empowered. But if you refuse to die, then you're going to stay in that situation subjugated. We don't want to be controlled, yet we let the devil control us. We're a really funny people. He says, it's like a grain of mustard seed which is sown into the earth. It's less than all the seeds in the earth. He says, I'm telling you something. What he's saying is the teachings that I'm going to give you are going to seem completely erroneous, completely uh, unimportant. Disregard them. That's, that's, that's how you're going to, that's how, when this thing happens. But you don't see the long-term goal of what happens when my word is received in someone. You guys ever had a, Acorn sprout in your yard. What happens when the mower runs over it? Kills it. I got a couple of acorns in my yard. They've been there for 40 years, and I, can't, I have to move my mower around them.
The long-term goal of kingdom operations is what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to do something insignificant in and through you, something that you're not going to see as important. You may not even be seen as important, but I'm going to put something in you, and then over time, I'm going to use that something to impact the entire culture around you. And so many times, our, our preparatory uh, response that God puts into our life is not for now, but we want it for now, and it's for something that's coming, but we're so selfish, we want that something that's then, later now. Did that make sense, or do I need to restate that? This side's a little louder. Let me try this side. Come on, guys. All right, there, there you go. We want the end result without having to go through anything to get there. We want our marriage fixed without doing the small things it takes to do that. If you steamrolled your children for the last 30 years of your life, you think you just want one apology is going to fix it? No. No, it takes time to plant seeds, to plant seeds, to water them, to nurture them to not stomp on them. And when they finally start to grow, you rejoice, but that's, that's when it gets real. That's when the, start, that's when the work starts. You've got to keep after it and keep watering it and keep, keep after it and then it begins to grow. What's, he says, what's the kingdom of heaven like? It's a slow, methodical process of the release of Jesus in your life. And the enemy knows this. And so what he does, because he knows it takes a great degree of time to be able to get this thing established and grown, what he does is he gets you distracted from that end goal. And pretty soon you don't have a heart for missions anymore because you're too focused on something else. Pretty soon you've forgotten that people around the world are starving and you're praying for a new car when you already have two. I'm just being real. I'm just saying, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not against that. So God works with the least, not to validate the least. That's not his goal. The, the point here, the, the letting this mustard seed grow wasn't so that it could finally feel better that it's, not long, it's no longer, oh, you're no longer this little mustard seed. You're this giant oak or you're this giant tree. That wasn't, that's, that wasn't the point. The point of the story in the parable says that when it was grown, it becomes something so great that even the fowls of the air come and rest upon it under its shade. The fowls of the air in the scripture are never, ever a good godly thing. Ever. What he's saying is that your impact over time and my release of my life in and through you to the culture around you is going to cause people who don't even believe in me to come take shelter under your rest. To where atheists even love hanging out with you, not because you, can, you, you condemn them, but because something about you is the only realm of peace that they can actually get in their life. That homosexuals finally feel comfortable enough around you to just open their heart and go, you are my friend and I thank you for that. You say, oh, we shouldn't. Why was the prostitutes comfortable in Jesus' presence? Am I condoning those sins? Absolutely not. But those sinners should be comfortable in our presence. Something about us should be, should be a, an attractive force. But guess what? This doesn't happen over time, does it? No. No. And so when we begin to make the little seed, the tree about us, 
we miss the intention of why it was planted in the first place. God doesn't get you saved to grow big churches, to start big ministries. He gets you saved because you're the only people in your context of your world that can represent him and release him like nobody else can. Not the pastor, not the preacher, not the prophet, not the evangelist, not the teacher. Only you can represent him where he's placed you because he custom made you with an ability to release him the way nobody else can. But we don't believe that. You know why? Because you're judging your ability to bear fruit based upon the season of your growth. A seedling that comes out of the ground can be told you have no ability to bear fruit. Is that true? Yes and no. It's all determined by the growth of their life, isn't it? There's certain things I tell my children, you can't do that now. Am I right? Yeah. But in time, that will be an incorrect statement. You with me? So we're judging ourselves by what we can't do instead of the potential of what God has called us to do and to prepare ourselves for that calling. Most people in this room and most places I pastor and I preach and I go to, they don't prepare themselves for the calling that God's given them. They come, they get some sort of word, they go back into their life, they don't change absolutely anything, they stay the same from Monday through Saturday, they come back to church, they get convicted again to change something, but they don't change anything, they don't prepare anything, they're not on their faces, they're not praying, they're not reading their Bible, they're not asking God, what's your call for my life, what's your purpose for my life? send people to my day, give me the words in my mouth to be able to speak to them. No, we're just like, oh man, I got this bill coming up at the end of the week. I got to go pay that bill. And then we encounter a hundred people that need Jesus, that are completely in the dark, have no peace, have no comfort, no rest. And we don't care. We just got to pay that bill. Does it make sense? So the goal was, the end goal was that, that this thing would shade and, and that people would come under his rest, right? All right, so it says in verse 32, it says, but when it's sown, it grows up and becometh greater than all the herbs. That one word, becometh, <laughs> it's crazy how the Bible takes one word sometimes, and that word represents 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, we read the story, we just skip from plant to harvest. That word becometh, or that word becomes, that word becomes. That one word bridges the gap between initiation and the end result. You know how many people quit during that time? You know how many people I started with when I started ministry a long time ago? You know how many people are still present? You know how many friends that started with me? They all quit. I don't know why they quit. Guys, my friends that got saved in the revival in Brownsville, I don't know why they quit. I don't know why they quit. But they quit. This is what I want to get back to. Verse 33. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. That's so huge to me. I guess most people maybe may read by that, but when I when I read that last statement, I'm like, oh my gosh. See, God always talks to you whenever you're actually going to listen to what he says. If you're not able to hear him, in other words, you don't want to hear what he has to say, guess what? He doesn't speak. 
See, nobody in here theologically is going to stand up and go, I don't want to hear God. You're never going to say that. You will never betray yourself with your own mouth saying that. But what we'll do is, is we'll come into a situation or scenario with our mind already made up what we're going to do. And then we're going to pray about it. We already know what we're going to do. And then we're like, well, God isn't speaking to me about it. I wonder why. Because you're not able to hear. Because if he actually told you the exact opposite of what you wanted to do, you would rebel. We would. I would, you would, we would. That's what we do. Okay. <laughs> Let's just put it in the third party. Have you ever tried to get somebody else to convince, to, to try to convince somebody else not to do what's already in their head? Anybody? Was anybody successful in stopping them? None. Do you think that God's going to stop you? No. So what's the point? The point is getting our minds to a point where we repent. We change how we think about everything that God's asking us to do. And we go to position neutral and we walk into a situation and scenario and say, I know what I'd like to do. However, everything's on the table. You speak to me and I will listen. And if you ask me to go the hard way, I'm going to go the hard way. He says, as they were able to hear it. There's some people that aren't able to hear it. There's some people that come to this church as visitors and they hear one message from me and they get really mad and they get really offended and they never come back. They're not able to hear it. See, God gets us ready for his ability to release himself through us. And how he gets us ready is by cleansing us and taking all this junk that we've brought into Christianity that doesn't belong there, and he starts rooting it out. And that's an important part of the process. However, we make that the entire process sometimes. So much so that we forget about why he called us. So it becomes an object of moral perfection instead of understanding that this is a process of, of regeneration as we work, as we go, right? And so what happens, we, 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 he, he begins to expose us, not so that we can be better. Your flesh will die. Your spirit will live. Your spirit looks just like Jesus. You were made into the image of Christ, true or not. The same way we were created at the beginning, made into his image. The same way in the end when we were recreated in Christ, we were made into his image. So, how much is moral perfection on the outside worth it? In the long run, we're already made like his image. In the short run, it determines everything as far as the reward of our works and what we get in following him in the end. Everything. The more we sanctify ourselves for his sake, the greater work we're able to accomplish for him here so that we get a greater reward there. Why is that important? Because the greater reward we get there, we lay at his feet to be able to offer him something that he's worthy of. This is the process. With me? So as we're able to, as he speaks, if we're not able to hear, he doesn't speak. All right? So God sent his word when, when God sent his word, it wasn't so that, uh, that, that that word could be a punctuation to our life. It was to rewrite the entire story. When God sent Jesus, it wasn't so that he could like accentuate your good parts and get rid of your bad. 
No. It was to get rid of everything and create a new species of humanity that looks just like him so that you can operate like God now, not as God, but like God, so, so that you don't operate like you used to. You with me? Oh, man, this is, y'all are rough this morning, I'm telling you. Uh, okay, so, so, so sometimes when God wants to get us to the point of what I'm trying to talk about, when he wants to get, expose us to his word that changes our mind, that changes our heart, that re- revives the point of why we're alive, sometimes how he gets us to love his word again is by he reveals, he reveals his son to us in a different way. But many times when he reveals his son to us in a different way, it's always through trial. It's always through trial. It's always through hardship. Jesus actually came at one of the worst points of Jewish history. Complete subjugation. No freedom. There was a lot of other times he could have came in history, but he came at one of the lowest points in Jewish history. Why? Because he reveals himself through, through struggle. So I want you to turn to, uh, oh, wait, wait. Go to the next one. One more verse. Yeah, without a parable, he did not speak to them. God hides things that he tries to say to see who's hungry to seek it out. He says, but when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. There's so many people who don't get alone with Jesus, therefore they don't understand what he's doing. That make sense? Okay, we can move on now. I wanted to finish saying that. All right, go to uh, Mark chapter 13, or Matthew chapter 13, I'm sorry. You got to forgive me. I'm, my eyesight is not what it used to be, and when I have all these abbreviated, the T looks like an R from a distance. All right. Matthew 13, verse 11. Jesus begins to tell some stories here, and then he says at the end of that, he answers them. He says, it's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to those on the outside, it's not given to them. So... Jesus is saying, I want you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. You with me? What's God's intention? For you to understand what? The mysteries of the kingdom of God. He doesn't want you to understand this life. We can't even understand creation, let alone the three square cubic feet that we stand upon. But he says, I want you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. It's given to you to know that. And if you don't know those things, how are you going to live for those things? It's hard to live for what you don't know anything about. Are you with me? Okay, what's the mystery of the kingdom of heaven? Anybody know? It's real simple. Paul tells us in Colossians, he tells us later on the word. He says, the mystery of the gospel is what? It's Christ in us. I want you to know Christ, and I want you to know that he's in you, and that kingdom is in you, and I want you to know the mysteries of that and how it unveils itself and unfolds itself in that. Because when the mystery is revealed, it's always revealed through a person. Always. How is the mystery of God revealed? Through the person of Jesus Christ. When God reveals his mysteries, he reveals them through people. You are those people. He says, I want you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And there's times where God is so full and thick in you that when you begin to minister and you begin to reach out to people and preach to people, things are going to come out of you that completely astound you. Why? Because it's God being revealed to the, to the world. It's God being revealed to the nations. And that's his goal. That's his intention. You're never more alive than in that moment. Why? Because that's the reason you were born. You'll never get that feeling working at your job unless at your job you're manifesting that reality. But you can. 
I heard a guy say one time, he said, you know what, it would be awesome for the church if she would do for love what she does for money. That you can go to work for love instead of going to work for money. That your, your reason for going is I'm going to work for God today. I'm not going to go work for my employer. I'm going to work for Jesus. Crazy thought, huh? Wild. Maybe that's the way we should think. Maybe that's what repentance is, is changing our mindset. You with me? So the mystery of the kingdom is Christ in us. It's not a sterile sense of God in us, but, but the right of Jesus to manifest himself through us in other people's storms. When they see you walking on their water, you're going to catch their attention. But if you're too engrossed in your own journey, you're going you're to miss the people around you who need, who need you. Does this make sense to you? Now, I, I, I'm preaching this to you, and it makes sense in your head, but I can't put this fire in your heart. Hearing this message will not give you the desire to go out and do exactly what I'm saying. It will not. It won't. This desire, this passion comes when you get back on your face and you put your head between your knees and you say, oh God, impregnate me with what you want to do with my life. And then something's going to be shifting inside your heart when that happens. And then when that happens, you're going to begin to look at everything else in your life as absolutely meaningless. And you're going to realign yourself with this purpose. And then you're actually going to get excited about the thing that you were once excited about again. See, God wants to walk the earth again. He wants to walk on the water again. He wants to heal the sick again. He wants to raise the dead again. He wants to comfort those who mourn again. He wants to begin to uh, be restore peace to those who are broken and lost. He wants to do that again, but he can't unless he does it through So what's the goal of the kingdom? What's the intention of the kingdom? To let the king be the king. The king can't be the king unless you and your lowercase k kingship allows him to take the precedence over your rule and reign, your job, your family, and be the king there, but he won't do it without invitation. So he can't heal the sick unless he heals them through you. Uh, he can, he won't. You with me? The only time Jesus intervenes is when it's absolutely physically impossible for mankind to, to geographically locate to a certain region. You understand if you bought a one-way ticket to certain Muslim countries and you got off the plane speaking Jesus' name and preaching the gospel, you would literally be killed within hours. So in that case, because nobody can go, these Muslims are having dreams of Jesus and visions of Jesus. Why? Because his goal isn't to do the job himself. His goal is to impregnate a people to do the job. And if he has to impregnate a few people to do the job, he will. But as soon as those people catch the vision and run with it, those visions and those dreams are going to stop. Why? Because the word is always intended to be flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It wasn't just for him. The word is supposed to be in our flesh as well. We're supposed to be the embodiments. You are the only Jesus some people are going to see. What have you represented? It's 
It pains me when some people sit there and walk in absolute darkness and sin and yet claim to be a Christian. Don't do that. If you're going to be in sin, don't even bring up that you believe in Jesus. Just go be in sin. Stop giving the rest of us a bad name. If you're going to go do sin, go do sin. The Bible says whatever you find to do, do it with all your might, not half of it. Do it with everything that's inside of you. And if you're going to serve the devil, don't even say you're a Christian. Just go serve the devil. Amen. Go. You're released. If you want to go, serve the devil. Serve him with everything you got. Don't play the middle ground. Because you're the only Jesus some people are going to see. And people define God by how you live your life. And if you're apathetic, they think God's apathetic towards them. And if you're uncaring, then they think God is uncaring. And if you're mean, then they think God is mean. And if you're selfish, they think God is selfish. That's why personal morality matters. It's not for you. It's because of his image and his reputation that you represent has nothing to do with you walking around feeling more astute and powerful about yourself because you've beaten certain sins. You didn't beat any sins. Jesus beat them all. This is why nobody has the right to be able to say, well, I beat it, you should be able to. Arrogance. If sin didn't teach you anything, it should have taught you compassion. At any moment, at any moment, you could be right where they are. Just a few circumstances changes everything, doesn't it? How many people still to this day, even maybe people in this room who are bitter for things that happened 30 years ago? Two years ago. Why? Because the circumstances, this changes a lot, doesn't it? See, he wants to walk on water again. How's he going to do it? Through you. If you can't even walk on your own storms, how are you going to walk on somebody else's? It's amazing how many Christians do not have their head in check. You know what anxiety is? All, all anxiety is, is an unbridled mind. Nobody gets anxiety unless they have this thing just running crazy. And they just can't stop it. And it gets worse and worse. And pretty soon those thoughts turn into emotions. Those emotions turn into passions. Those passions turn into desires. Those desires turn into realities. Those realities turn into chaos. Why? Because the devil knows that the only access to the kingdom of God he has is through your mind. And Jesus knows the only access he has is through the same avenue. Why? Because that's what he said. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change how you think because I'm bringing a kingdom you're not going to understand if you bring in the old ways of thinking. He's talking to Jews, people who had a very solid understanding of an old way of worship, and he says, you have to change that. And there's a lot of American Christians that have an old understanding of worship and what it means, and they need to change that. In John 4, Jesus looks at a woman and says, you worship what you do not know. It's possible to lift your hands and sing the song and not know who you're singing to. Just like my wife was saying, if it's not real for us, make it real. And as, I, as she was singing that, I was actually thinking, you know, I wonder how many people in this room that that's, that's actually true for. You're all I want, you, you know. You're all I love. I surrender all. All those things that are 
Lies. They're lies. I change them in my mind. When I sing them, you do what you you want. When I sing those songs, I change them. I change the words. I want to love you more. You're the most important thing. I want you to be the most important thing to me. I change it because I don't want to be a liar. I mean, right in the presence of God singing lies to me, he's going to go, oh, it's so sweet and cute. Just keep it coming. (laughs) I don't think that's the way it works. That's my opinion. You can disagree with me and we'll we'll be good. Mark chapter 6. I'm going to close here shortly here. And it says, straightway he constrained his disciples to get in the boat. They go to the other side, verse 45, before they go into Bethsaida. Mark 6:45 it says they sent the people away. When he sent them away he departed to a mountain to pray and when the evening was come the ship sailed in the midst of the sea and he was alone on land and when he saw them toiling and rolling rowing for the wind was contrary to them and about the fourth watch of the night which is about what 3 in the morning <clears throat> he came to them walking upon the sea and would have passed by them. So this is God he's up in the mountain he's praying he's one with his father he watching this whole thing happen. I mean, he's got a good shot, an eye shot. Of what, these disciples are just getting after, and they're trying to obey him and trying to obey him. He says, you want you to go to the other side. Did he tell them to do that? Yes. Are they trying to obey? Yes. Are they having any success? No. Why? Because when you try to succeed in something God said without God present, you will always fail. That's what religion does. That's an amen. I'll amen myself. They're trying to obey, but they can't. And guess what? In Mark's gospel, here's what it says. It says that he acted as if he was going to pass by them. See, Jesus isn't going to get in your boat just because you need him. He's not going to get in your circumstance because you need him. He's going to get into your circumstance because you ask him. Asking him implies surrender to him. This makes sense to you. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? These guys are real close to him. This is Jesus. They live with him for a while, and he's just like, hey, guys, what's up? And he keeps, he keeps on walking. Could you see that we're in, we need you? He's like, yeah, I've been watching from, for a long time. But I'm not going to intervene without your invitation. And you keep rowing. And everybody else that you knows that you're a Christian sees you struggling and rowing and rowing and rowing. But they don't want it. Why? So I can have to work hard like that and be just as miserable? And people want actual hope. If you can't demonstrate to them a marriage that's, that's, that's attractive, why would they want to come waste time on a Sunday morning in a geographical location when they can just be in a different geographical location and get the same thing, not changing? Something has to be different. Life has to be present. This is the kingdom mandate. God did not save you to become an American uh, uh, participant. He put you in this culture to change this culture, and that happens over time. He plants seeds of the word of God in your life and in your heart, and he expects you to take care of them. God's not going to water your plant. God gives the increase. You have to water it. You have to take care of it. If you don't, it will die. Go read the story of the parable of sower. The word of God in many people's lives died. It just, they didn't take it. They didn't receive it. And the ones that did receive it, some of it, the cares of the world choked it out and it brought no fruit. 
No multiplication, no more seed, no more process, no more kingdom advancement, no more. You, you get what I'm saying here. I just want to remind, I'm, this is a reminder sermon, so I'm, I'm just trying to help you guys. So he, he says, they all saw him and they were troubled and immediately he talked with them, got in the boat and he said, be of them good cheer. Well, he, he says, be of them good cheer. It's, it's me, don't be afraid. In the middle of their storm, he's like, it's, it's me, I'm here, don't be afraid. Did, did that stop the fear? No, just like I said, I was praying this morning. You can know that he's Emmanuel, but that doesn't stop the fact that you're afraid. Well, I know God's with me. Well, then why are you afraid? Because he's not in your boat. <laughs> I don't mean you're not saved. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you can walk this whole thing without God as much as you want. And, and he says, I'm, I'm with you. But it, they didn't get peace until he steps into the boat, verse 51. The wind ceased. They were amazed in themselves beyond measure. They wondered, verse 52, they considered, they, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. In, this, in, in, this, um, in Mark's gospel here, he equates their entire inability to understand what happened by their inability to understand what happened in a miracle earlier. So their heart was hard to what God was doing in their life at the moment, even though God was present in them. Does that blow your mind? God fixed their situation. He's present in their circumstance. He reestablishes the peace, and yet they still have what? Hard hearts. That's church today. It's just most church today. It's all it is. Oh, I got touched by God. How many years ago? Oh, I got touched by God. All these things happened, but they still have hard hearts. What's the hard heart? It's the heart that doesn't receive the word. The parable of the sower. Heard it, was present in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of the word. It was given. It landed on something that was hard. In other words, I'm not going to change. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I disagree with you, pastor. Okay, fine. I'm not. We'll see who has more fruit in the end. We'll see. I'm good with that. I'm good with, the, I'm good with the challenge. You live your life how you want to live it. I'll live mine how I'm going to live. And at the end of our lives, we'll compare fruit and see. Because you can't fake fruit, can you? You can fake environments. You can fake circumstances. You can fake gifts. But you can't fake fruit. You cannot fake people's walking up to you and going, I would not be where I'm at with Jesus today without you. If you hadn't existed, I would never be where I'm at with God today. And I think that's good to get that in your family. You should have that in your family, but you should also have that outside your family. You with me? All right. I don't have time to go into the rest of this. When God starts purifying us, it's for his purposes and his glory. Not ours, not, not so that we can be better. In James, it says, when a man is tempted, he's drawn away by his own lusts and enticed. People think that that stuff is the devil. No, it's the devil seeing something he owns in you, thereby giving him access to you. When lust comes out of a man, it's not because of any other reason that that's what's in him. We're enticed by the things that are in our hearts that we don't let Jesus have access to. It's easy to say, oh, the devil's all mean and bad. No, Jesus says out of the heart flow all these things, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, covetousness. 
So God wants to purify us, not so that we can finally feel comfortable in our skin. He wants to get that junk out of us. Why? Because we are his ultimate representation. The goal is not so that you can feel better about you and get far enough away from your sin where you don't feel uh, <coughs> convicted anymore, condemned anymore. The idea is for you to become that tree that is able to bear the wind and the elements and suffer under those things so that somebody else underneath you can have shade and rest. That's the goal. You may not be there right now. That's okay. The goal is to get there. The goal is to understand that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going to get to. I'm not going to condemn myself for not being there, but I am going to take care of this little thing that God's doing in my life until I get there so that his purposes can be established in my life. If sin is in your life, it's because it's in your heart. Show me in the Bible where I'm wrong. Show me. And so that's arrogant. Is it arrogant to stand upon what God has already said for us and for us to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith or not? Is that arrogant or is that why I'm just trying to warn you of something that's coming and, and, have, and not have you waste your entire life on something you were never born to, to do? Do we have to pay bills? Yes. But that's not why we're here. God can make sure that in the doing of that, we're a perfect representation of his son, Jesus. And when we realize we're not, right, then we're exposed. And when we're exposed, we have something to say. Now, this is where I start again. This thing that was wrong in me that God exposed, this is where I start. This is where my battle is. And if it hadn't reared its ugly head, I would be confused on where to start. But now that it has reared its ugly head, I know exactly where to start. Does that make sense to you? Is this... Let's not lose our focus of kingdom reality and why we're here. Because if that happens, then everything of your entire existence and your reality has been stolen from you. You can stand. If you came here looking for some sort of pat on the back or whatever, I mean, I apologize. I, I understand if you don't like me, that's okay. Jesus thinks I'm okay. I like his opinion of me. I'm not perfect. I'm so far from it, guys. But one thing I try to do is to make everything I do revolve around him and other people. If I can do that, then I keep myself out of it. And if other people push on me to such a point where I, something comes out of me that I don't like, I, I take it to God and I say, thank you for exposing me. Thank you, thank you for showing me what's still in my heart. And I thank you that you would only show me that because you're ready to deliver me from it so that I can be a better representation of your kingdom and your gospel. So I, I encourage you and I challenge you this week not to let this message, this message, most of you are going to forget this message. But if you remember one thing, remember this. Go home this week and actually get on your face and ask God, why am I here? Restore my purpose. And you do that until he speaks to you or moves in your heart. And that you'll never forget. You'll never forget that move, that moment, that touch. Amen. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Only you can make these things realities in the hearts of men. So I thank you for the honor and the privilege of being before you and before your people. 
And if there's anything I've said that wasn't of you, just erase it and let the things that are of you stand fast and firm and true in their hearts and their minds. And God, let them uh, grow into the this this tree planted by rivers of living water that causes them to be able to uh, hold those underneath them in the form of, of, of protection and safety and restoration and rest. That God, your kingdom would be established and planted in the earth and everything else would, ha- would have to move around it. So I, I thank you for these people here, those you love, those you died for, those you care for. And I thank you for the great concern you have over their life. And I'm asking for them to have a greater understanding or revelation of Emmanuel, God with them, and that they would invite you into their boat, into their storm, into their chaos, into their reality, and that they wouldn't forget why they're here on this earth. I bless you, Father. I bless your people. I thank you, Jesus, for all these things. In your name we pray. Amen.